Welcome everyone to this edition of the Seed Camp podcast series. I'm Carlos Espinal, and with me I have James Mode, who is our expert in residence. Uh, James, uh, why don't we start off with your background? Uh, you have a very illustrious background, having spent some time at IDEO, but maybe go all the way back to when you first fell in love with products and then how that evolved. Oh God, my, it's kind of a shameful story in a way. Uh, my very first, uh, I guess, product building or figuring out experience was back in 1999 in the very first dot-com boom. And uh, I guess this ages me a lot, but I was part of a very sad startup called Audio Basket. And basically, it was designed to help people organize podcasts. Really? Which is great, except for there were no iPods, if you remember correctly. Yeah. And the entire company was predicated, success of it was predicated on the idea that MP3 players, remember those big, bulky, horrible things, were going to be the number one Christmas gift of 1999. And so we... When did, the creative, when, when did that creative one come out? Remember the... That, yeah, it was the creative one. one. People thought that the Creative Labs one was going to be... Yeah. that thing and of course we didn't have a clue about sort of delight or usability or anything like that and we all woke up you know January 1st 2000 with uh, still about 20 million dollars in the bank and uh, very few very few um, it was a, it was a crazy time in San Francisco yeah, uh, and very few uh, 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 mp3 players having been sold. And so all the work we were doing by coming up with fantastic content and ways for people to, to organize it just got stymied by the fact that the fundamental technology made the whole thing incredibly unusable and it took literally like 12 hours for people to download a series of organized podcasts. Yeah, I can imagine. And to be honest, that's what I guess ultimately sent me to, to business school because I thought business school would help me figure out all that stuff. Yeah. And so I, I went to business school. Actually, uh, that's where I met uh, Reshma. You know your, uh, your your partner in crime, who uh, who was both a friend and uh, an int intimidating uh, <laughs> person. On intimidating stature, right? I would say yes, yes, small in stature, but uh, but 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 big in voice. Um, so that's so then you started discovering kind of a, a switch away from that. So what, what came after that then? Yeah. So after that, is what I'm saying is my real graduate education came at working at a small design and innovation agency where I found myself after business school, and that's when I went from taking all the lessons of you know business and all the different things you learn in management, and put it aside for a while because my main job was to spend time in people's homes, in people's lives, observing how they lived what they did, how they used products, what their assumptions were. Were these the people that invited you into their homes? Or? No, no, come on. It's, 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 uh, it's, it's, uh, it's user research, right? So we, I worked on everything from, God, from furniture to, uh, I did work for, for HP. Um, I did a whole bunch, you know, like a, like a typical consultant trying to figure out new products and services. But it was a real trial by fire in learning the difference in what people say and what they do and how to really listen and how to figure out unmet needs. And I think for me, that is the real basis of how, how I certainly approach the world of developing products and services. And finally, many years later, how I think lots and lots of people in this space are realizing that that's how you have to build stuff. You have to pay close attention to, to, what, to what people need, mm. and even if they can't necessarily tell you. And so I consider that, yeah, I consider those days at a small company in the Bay Area, my 
my sort of second graduate school and really understanding not just the business and technology side of things, but really understanding people's behavior. And I guess I became, uh, once you spend time with people, once they really open up to you and they take you on a tour of their house and they show you how they use different things, it's kind of an addictive high and you only want to solve problems in that human-centered way after mm. that. Okay, and then that's when you were... That's why I was, that was in the Bay Area doing that kind of work. Mm -hmm. And then I, uh, I had wanted to... Uh, I'd, I'd done a lot of work in Europe. I'd been to business school uh, in France. And I'd wanted to get back to the European scene. So when I got an offer to join IDEO, right, which is this big international design innovation firm, um, I took it and I came back to London and that was about eight years ago. And in some ways that was a continuation of the stuff I'd been doing before, but in many ways it was very different, right? Um, suddenly I was looking at people and problems all over the world. I was in the Middle East, I was in Lebanon, I was in China. I was meeting uh, you know, subsistence farmers in India and trying to figure out what it would take to get them to buy health insurance. Mm. Um, and I was taking everything I'd learned before and putting it in a context of more different examples from different contexts around the world. And also spending time, IDEO is known for having great designers. And so I was around people who built, right, who built things. So right? let's, let's, let's explore that a little bit further because I think the stereotype is that it's a design firm. Yeah. And yet your background is far more mixed than a straight up design. And so uh, maybe share a little bit, kind of where does that intersect? Where, where does the person who's not a designer uh, cross into that mentality of a designer? How, how, how did you jump that? Well, I guess to say that if you think of design as not just the act of making things, I mean, that's what I guess it used to be years ago, but over the years, we've learned that the things a lot of designers did instinctually, you know, spend time with people, understand how they use things, turn what they learned, into physical stuff and then put it back in front of people and iterated it and came back. Yeah. Uh, that's what I think when I think of design. And I guess I'm not an amazing form giver, you know, I'm not a pixel maker of any kind. Um, but I, uh, I'm like a lot of people at IDEO, I don't necessarily make things, but I play the role of finding the intersection between what businesses need, what human behavior is telling us, and what that means for the kind of stuff you should build and make. And so there, IDEO, the output, you know, is what everybody sees as these amazing uh, uh, apps and products and retail spaces and all sorts of things. Um, but what comes behind it are a lot of people, some many of which are, are you know, form-giving designers, but many of which are anthropologists and ethnographers. Uh, I worked with food scientists, behavioral economists, and I was, you know, one of a team of, I guess, business guys, MBAs, uh, who, unlike other, other design environments, at IDEO, I had the privilege of being a business guy who was invited into the design process from the very, very beginning and, and realizing that uh, the business factors had to play a role um, from your initial coming up with ideas, your initial framing of the problem. And that's, I guess, what made IDEO different. And so, do you, I mean, there's so much sort of lore around kind of the, the that, that sort of environment. And maybe is there any clients or any kind of project you worked on that you'd love to share about kind of how either it went really well or maybe not so well? I'm trying to think. I, the, the vast majority of stuff that I worked on at IDEO was really, really secret. So there Top isn't... secret, huh? Well, well, you designed the iPod. Really? I, yeah, well, no. Uh, I'm, I'm trying... It is a little tough for me to, to think of stuff, but um, there was a, a group of hospitals that I was working with uh, in Southeast Asia and it was a great experience because we were learning how to, they needed a way to help people understand their, their bills, their hospital bills, you know, a little bit better. 
And I guess, you know, it was a, a great experience because, you know, you, you follow people through that process where there's a lot of stress and they're at, you know, the uh, A&E and they are being faced with lots of papers and they have to make decisions about their family. It's one of these design environments where lots of information clashes with lots of emotion. And in some ways it was a classic project. We drew out the entire journey of what happens from the minute a member of your family gets sick all the way to that experience of having to deal with the aftermath and pay bills, etc. And it, you know, it's one of the basic tools of service design, right? Creating a service journey step by step and seeing what people's functional needs, what their emotional needs are, and figuring out where there is opportunity to help, mm. right? And in the end, that project led to the, not just the creation of some new software, right, that helped people sort of see the data, right, which is really important, but also the creation of a new person. I believe they start calling them a care cost counselor, right, who was a person who was there to help stressful people or stressed, not stressful people, but people who are stressed, stressful manage stressful, yeah, well, um, manage the information they are being given and help make better decisions, better trade-offs at a moment of, of intensity. And I know that from what I hear um, since leaving IDEO, I know that that work has gone on and has in, you know, made some inroads within that hospital system. And it's not a major thing. I don't know, your audience is probably a little disappointed that this isn't, that I'm not talking about some fantastic app. No, but when I think, when I think of right? a great design impact, I think of finding, and this is maybe a lesson for a lot of the, maybe the startups who are listening, is finding just the right change in the process that, um, that, enables, uh, that, enables a, uh, that enables a whole experience to become better. I mean, I don't mean to sort of segue too much to the stuff we're about to talk about, but I was speaking to uh, one of the startups at C-Camp a couple of days ago, and upon talking to them, I realized that they were trying to create, take a process they'd seen out in the world they wanted to improve, and they were trying to recreate the entire thing online. Mm -hmm. Recreate every step in the belief that it would, if it were digital, the whole thing would be better. And when I talked to the designer on their team, they said, yeah, well, every time we talk you know, to, the, to the potential customers, they say that you know, a lot of their existing paper solutions work really well. And she kept on saying this. I'm like, well, maybe you're solving too much of their problem. Right. Yeah, you, you can draw out that whole journey. Yeah. But the answer isn't always to recreate it digitally. The answer is to find the bit where, you, where there's a gap, where there's a friction, where you, where a great minimal solution can add the most value. Yeah. I mean, that, that's, that's really kind of a good segue into the three points that you made in a recent blog post that you did at, on the Seedcamp website. Of, of integrating both everything from customer discussions to that workflow. And uh, in the top three points you made was you want to know uh, the questions, not the answers. You talk about uh, really focusing on users, not your UX. And you conclude with uh, getting your service journey right. And you were talking about that with regards to the hospital. Um, as a precursor to talking about the actual product. And then maybe Maybe you can sort of walk through either with a case study or kind of maybe each one of those points separately if you want, but how, how all these things tie together into like a process that somebody can embark on and not necessarily feel like it's too nebulous, too, too sort of overwhelming? Yeah, sure. I, I think, you know, that, that first point you made, you know, I want to know your questions, not your answers. I don't know if I really, I, I'll admit that wasn't necessarily a piece of actionable advice, but it was the point, the point I was trying to make is that when I meet folks at Seed Camp, they have often spent, I know you know, like weeks or months um, 
seeming really confident, talking to potential investors and advisors and saying, this is our product and we know this is how people are going to act and we believe this is how customers are going to behave. And often when I talk to them, they've gotten to the point where they actually believe that completely. And you know, the, the reality of starting a business isn't just taking this, this, this idea that you have and proving that it's right. You know, the reason that people are giving you money, the reason that people are, are you know, your investors are, are putting trust in you is because they think you're really smart and they think you're really good at figuring out answers to questions. You're going to ask the right ones. They're not just <laughs> giving you money because they think you have the right answer. And so I think the reason I bring up that point um, is because the first thing to do when you're talking to an advisor is not to say, you know, to, to necessarily show off your confidence, but to say, these are the questions that that we have doubt about. These are our big assumptions that we think are unclear. The best way I can help you as an, uh, I guess as an expert in residence, as a, as, a, as, a, as a mentor, is to look specifically into areas where you're most uncertain, particularly around how customers are really going to behave. Mm-hmm. Right? And so I think I made that point mostly just to, 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 to shake people off a little a bit of their, their uh, to say, hey, you, know, you don't have to be that confident mm-hmm. when we're really getting into the, the nitty-gritty of how customers behave. Right? It's actually yeah. all about doubt and questions and, and actually, assumptions. a lot, a lot of very good investors will be impressed by having an understanding yeah. of the outstanding questions that you're trying to validate, rather yeah. than uh, pretending and turning a blind eye to actual issues because you want to have this veneer of, of confidence. So, yeah, having clarity of these questions is just as powerful. Yeah, it, it can actually be really dangerous when people are giving you too much confidence before you've a- answered the questions. Um, one of the examples that I, I uh, I mentioned in the blog post um, is a company that I met here at Seedcamp. Um, I'm not going to name them, um, but uh, the CEO uh, is very charismatic. The product idea was really was really interesting, and uh, they had a whole bunch of uh, of people the CEO knew of potential clients who were all ready to sign up. And the temptation was to get these guys signed up as early customers because the investors would really love that, um, but. Uh, you know, when you talk to them, you realize that they didn't actually know if any of those customers would use the product in the way they expected. And so my advice to them in that first meeting was like, hold your horses. Like, don't sign all these people up. Just sign up a couple and watch how they behave. Watch how they use it. Um, and then you'll have answered some questions. When you have more confidence, then you can increase your sales effort. Yeah. And whether they got to, I don't know if they just got that advice from me, but they definitely were a bit patient. And what do you know, four months later, it turns out that uh, their their users were using a totally other part of their product than what they expected. Yeah. They pivoted, they changed name, they changed tagline, and now they feel much stronger about what they're offering, and now they're about ready to embark on a proper sales push. Um, but uh, just imagine, I mean, imagine if they had just taken on all those customers, it's like, you know, making and baking at the same time, right? They, they would yeah. never have had the mental bandwidth to really focus on the product. Fair enough. Um, did you want to comment at all oh, about the, the other? Uh... Yeah, I mean about the other points, but I think that this concept of user experience, right? Like, um, I think it, again, there's some people in the audience who who are probably very knowledgeable in this, and others who think of it as an aggregation of many different things, and it's very nebulous. And and how do you see that playing out? How do I see that playing out? Um, you know, the the there's a, the real confusion out there is user experience as design versus user experience as the set of uh, activities and emotions and moments that you enable step-by-step through the journey of using your product. That's what I think of user experience. But UX has become code word for this is how, this is how things look, this is how they act. 
Um, and the reason that's really dangerous is because um, because of something really good, right? There is a lot of really good UX out there. Uh, apps and websites and digital tools are so much more elegant and beautiful and easy to use than they ever were before. We are in like, you know, and, and, and UXers are, are, have leadership roles in companies. It's, it's, in some ways, it's a glory, day, glory days for people in the world of digital design. However, what that means is that a lot of folks, they create design that looks like good flat UX. It, it looks simple, it's open, it has a simple, you know, clean lines, flat, you know, they, they use very human language. All those things are in place. And so they, they, they do that. They, they build something that looks like that. They say, oh yeah, well, you know, I've, there I've, you know, I've got good UX and people are going to, when they see it, within a few seconds they're going to recognize that as good design. And, you know, the number of companies I've seen here at Seedcamp that hit the very sort of superficial sides of what good UX are, but when you actually use the product, you're like, oh, but this isn't doing anything that the customer actually needs at this point. It just sort of looks really simple. Right. I mean, the example that um, I've given in the, in, in the past is uh, another company I was working with here at Seacamp, and they were aggregating sort of high-value content. And they had sort of a, a very particular type of subscription uh, business model and, and, and monetization, monetization approach, whatever, pricing plan. And what would happen is within a couple of clicks, you get to this site, and you're immediately looking at a way to sign up and subscribe and figure out how you're going to pay them this whatever fee. And the design of it was really, really nice looking. You know, it was flat, not too much stuff on the page. It looked on the surface like good UX. But whatever I do, whenever I'm working with a company, rather than just appreciate the design, I put my head in the mind of the customer and I go step by step saying, well, what is the customer thinking? What are they feeling at this point? And I'm going to ask you this question. If you have heard about a great movie star or a, or a piece of content that you're excited about and you click on it and you arrive at that site, what are you expecting to see? Well, I guess it depends on what the, the, the message that I read that was converting me to that traffic. If it was like any kind of call to action, I would expect that call to action to be relevant. So where I land that call to action, if it says... If you saw an Carlos, I'm gonna, I'm gonna stop you. I'm gonna stop you. No, what, like you're, you're you're excited about movies and movie stars. You click on something about movies and movie stars. What do you when that's, you get to the site? What do you expect to see? James, that's clickbait. I, I don't yeah, know. But, but, yeah, well, I, but you expect to see content. Yeah. You expect to see like, you know, whether or not you you think you're gonna see the full video clip that you were expecting when you clicked. At the very least, you expect to see something that leads with with content, yeah. not leads with here is our subscription model and here is how you can sign up for it. All right, right? So, so delivering on the promise. Yeah, but, but I guess for me, the point, like at that moment, it's like what is in the user's head? What does the user need to see at this moment and deliver that? And actually the design should fall out of that. And I'll be honest, I don't really care as much since, since working with, you know, since leaving IDEO, I've learned that I don't care so much about whether the design is perfect and elegant and, 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 and absolutely the simplest it can possibly be. It's more important that you have identified at that moment, what does your user need to feel? What do they need to do? Are you enabling that to happen? All right, so let me, let me push back on that a little bit. You said that you were putting yourself in the, in the shoes of the customer um, in that journey, and yeah. you had landed on that page and was like, why am I in confronted with this whole subscription stuff? Yeah. And I think to some extent, intuitively, we could relate to what you said and be like, okay, that makes sense. Um, yeah, maybe this company should do something differently. But you're really diving into experience that you have 
in order to arrive to that conclusion, is that at risk of actually trumping a customer research? And do startups, can they rely on, uh, let's say, uh, intuition? Like, let's say they listen to this podcast. They, they say, have wow. to rely on intuition. You right. don't have enough time or money to not rely on intuition. Right. But when is that wrong? Like, is, is James ever wrong? Like, is, if, if James is there and is sitting in the room, and he's from, <laughs> is he ever wrong? Uh, yeah. When do you trust? I mean, when, when do you, you when do you that? trust your gut? Yeah, as when do you trust your gut? Because like right now you just said something which is so. I'm so okay. I'm I, I, I'm not in that particular example. Mm. We were talking about you know clicking on content and 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 it's something. It is a very common activity on the web. I do lots of it. Yeah. And so it was pretty easy for me to think intuitively. But I'll say you know. But just to see the next thing we did. With that, next thing, the next coaching session I have with that company, we actually did a different kind of exercise. We wasn't the exercise wasn't listen to James and he'll tell you what the customer thinks. Yeah. We did a very sort of we did one of the building blocks of great service design, which is we we asked them to build personas, right? And so uh, a persona, uh, and I think I realized in a couple sessions I've had recently that not everyone knows what a typical user persona is, mm -hmm. and a persona is an imaginary customer, mm -hmm. right? And it's not just an imagine, and but it's there. It's a holistic view of them, right? So I was talking about personas yesterday with the seed camp group I was talking to, and I said, "Does anyone here have personas?" And he said, "Yeah, we have a persona. It's someone who is a mid-level data analyst." And I'm like, "That is their job. Their persona is uh, what are their ambitions? How comfortable technology are they? Uh, how do they get to this role?" Who are they responsible to? What's in their wallet? What kind of technology do they use at home? A persona is a, is a full view of your customer as a real human. Right. Real human with a full life. Right. Okay? And if you're building a company, one assumes that you have at least an initial knowledge of the real people who you think are going to be using your product. Okay, so, so, that, so, that, so I think that's it. I think yeah. that's it. I think what the point you were making earlier really comes down to Yes, there is. You don't have enough time to go out and do this research sometimes. But if you, you sh if you can't even embark on yeah. coming up with a very good persona, then you're probably too early to start making these assumptions. Oh yeah, yeah. And I think I've noticed with companies that have a great bit of technology and are desperate to figure out. I mean, you see this all the time. I have a great bit of technology. I have no idea who might want to use it. Yeah. And so they look at the market and they talk to their business advisors and they say, "Oh, you should go B two B, or you should yeah. that you and and they pivot." because that's what the market numbers tell them they should do. But one of them really literally asked me, do I have to speak to all these customers? Yeah. And there's just a long moment of silence. So, um, but I just want to continue with, just with the other example of yeah. the, this, this content company. When we met again, they had created three separate personas, yeah. about three very different types of customers who come to use their product in really different ways. They weren't necessarily going to build their product around all three of those, yeah. but using those personas, we could then play those personas through scenarios and through scenes. Well, how would they act? Why? What do they need here? Yeah. So that, it's not about listening to James. It's yeah. about actually sometimes digging deep into your own instincts and building the best customer view you can and then being honest as to where the gaps are. And yeah. then maybe you need to go and speak to some people. Excellent. That makes complete sense. Now, what startups do you think that publicly uh, we can point to that you think get this right? There, there, there's lots of great startups out there. Um, one that I point to sometimes with uh, the teams I speak to here is one called Canva. Um, I don't know them personally. I just, you know, see them around. C-A-N-V-A. Okay. Um, and they are uh, a tool that allows you to create uh, 
beautiful graphic documents of different types, you know, cards and posters and all sorts of things uh, online. And it's very WYSIWYG, right? It makes it super easy to create things that are pretty easy. Um, and you're like, wow, that's great. That's so much easier than using InDesign or any of those things. And they, you, you would think they would just put this thing out there and it would be so easy and impressive that everybody would want to use it. But they realize that a lot of the people who are using their thing to make a document, they're not just excited about the benefit of this being so easy, they're also a little bit afraid. Yeah. What, if I get, what if I get this wrong? What if I, it takes me too long to use this? What if the output is not at all up to the level that I'm responsible for, 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 for putting out there in the world? Yeah. And so Canva, the very first thing you do when you sign up is they take you through four steps of a really easy set of four challenges that show you how to use the different bits of their, of their tool. And the challenges are not real life challenges. They're like, this is a monkey. Find a hat in our database and put a hat on this monkey. Yeah. They make it fun. They take the user away from their sense of anxiety or risk of, oh, how am I gonna get this flyer out to my client? Yeah. They say, hey, we're gonna just do this for fun and we're gonna make you feel successful at it and we're gonna mitigate the fear that you have that you don't know how to use this thing or that this thing doesn't work like the tools you've used before. They're just really sensitive, at least from what I observe from their UX, right? Yeah. They're really sensitive to that user's first onboarding experience and they don't just focus on the benefits that they bring, they also subtly address the, the risks and the, the anxieties that a user might have about trying something totally new. Yeah. Cool. Um, on that note, um, maybe we can conclude with a shameless plug oh. of what you're working on and how people can interface with you and, and any final points that you want to add. Oh, uh, I don't know, shameless plug. I mean, basically, I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a service designer for hire these days. And I do a mix of working with big companies and their teams and help, helping them to get these tools and approaches right. Um, I also, you know, interact, uh, I interact with startups, you know, with, with, with folks who are on a much faster pace than anyone I ever worked with at IDEO, but need quick bits of input and direction on how to approach user problems and develop products appropriately. Yeah. And I also build stuff, you know, I'm, I'm a, uh, next week I'm heading off to Senegal, I'm working on a big project, building a new approach to, um, to mass market mobile banking um, in sub-Saharan Africa. So I'm doing a mix of all the stuff I love. Um, but I, I never do anything full-time because I always like to keep time for cool and inspiring projects from all sorts of different uh, folks and organizations. So if you think it'd be worth getting together, yeah, yeah, always take lunch. How can people get a hold of you? Uh, I'm on Twitter, at James Moed. Um, uh, you can find me on LinkedIn pretty easily. And, uh, or join Seedcamp, right? Or join Seedcamp, right. exactly, exactly. Hey, yeah, thanks, thanks for the opportunity to plug, Carlos, I appreciate yeah, it. Yeah, no worries. All right. Guys, thanks uh, for joining us and stay tuned till next time. Bye.